morning, everybody. <clears throat> so glad you're here today. If this is your first time, thank you so much uh, for coming to check us out. I hope you've received a warm welcome. So it was in 1996 that I can remember the first time I heard of this young man who had been recruited straight from high school into the NBA. That was the first time I'd heard the name Kobe Bryant. Uh, he was an all-time leading scorer for the L.A. Lakers, even surpassed Jerry West from Cabin Creek, West Virginia. Um, Want to make sure you knew that. Uh, and he was a four-time MVP. Played for 20 seasons uh, with the L.A. Lakers. And I, like you, was shocked last Sunday when that notification came across my phone that said he had been killed in a helicopter crash. Not just him, but his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, and there were eight others as well. And, and just like that, he was gone. He seemed too young. All those thoughts flew through my head. I, I can't believe this had happened and, and happened when it, it did. And nevertheless, one day later, Everybody's coping with the loss of, of this young man who'd done so much. See, we all have this final enemy at some point we're going to face. Uh, this final enemy called death. And some people, uh, they try to ignore it. They think it's not going to happen to them. I know in my teens and my 20s, I thought, well, this is just some far-off thing that's really never going to come for me. And every day I look in the mirror and realize it's coming. I'm not getting any younger. Some people try to deal with it with humor. Uh, Woody Allen would say, I know my death is, is coming, it's going to happen, I just don't want to be there when it does. And I'll never forget the words of Garrison Keillor. He said, when I pass away, I want to go quietly in my sleep, the way my grandfather did, and not screaming in terror like all the passengers in his car. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a minute. There was a columnist in the Orange County newspaper in California that said, once I realized how expensive funerals are, I began to exercise and watch my diet. But frankly, the only benefit of watching your, watching your diet and, your ex and, and exercising is you'll be a healthy person when you pass away. You can ignore it, you can laugh at it, you can fight it, but the truth is someday death is going to knock on all of our doors. And the question I want for us to grapple with today is how can we face death without fear? And frankly, is that even possible? Is it possible for us to face death and to live out a life free from the fear of death? The passage I want us to look at today comes again from Hebrews chapter 2. Today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You may be seated. So we're continuing this series this morning that we've been going through in the book of Hebrews. And there's this strong theme throughout Hebrews, don't stop believing. You know, again, that song from Journey just kind of jumps in your head when you hear that. Don't stop believing. Persevere in the faith. Keep on going. Even though suffering comes your way, even death, persevere in the faith no matter what. And this morning we're going to come at this big topic. I want to talk through, first of all, some of the reasons that we fear death. And I'm going to draw largely on a book called The Art of Dying by a guy named Robert Neal. Then we'll walk through the passage. And first of all, we'll see that Christ was perfected through death. Well, well, what in the world does that mean? I mean, he's God. Wasn't he perfect already? We'll see that Christ stands with us in this, this solidarity, and then that Christ freed us from the fear of death. Then we'll talk about, well, why shouldn't Christians fear death? And the four reasons I bring up of why death is scary, I'll bring up the four reasons corresponding to those as to why we shouldn't be afraid of death. So let's get started then. I want to talk about, first of all, why is death scary? And there was a book written by a guy named Robert Neal. He'd written several books, actually, on death and the dying process. Uh, he was uh, training a lot of pastors who were helping others deal with the dying process. And he came up with three reasons. There's a fourth reason, actually, that I'll, that I'll bring up, too. But let me start out with these three. Um, first of all, we fear the loss of mastery. We fear the loss of mastery. That is to say, in the process of dying, we quickly realize that we are no longer in control of what's happening. Much like when we first come into the world in those first few moments, where we don't have control really over ourselves or what's being done to us, the dying process is similar in that. And we're fearful of that. Losing control, not being in control of your own actions or even what's being done to you in that moment. And then secondly, we fear incompleteness and failure. You know, especially, I think, in your life, if you've enjoyed successes, and there's more that you want to do, and there's more that you're looking forward to doing, that brings that to an abrupt end. I uh, recently read an article. This was from, from Sting. If you're an old police fan, he was the lead singer. And he was meditating on the death of some rock icons, Prince and David Bowie. And he goes on to say, I'm 64 and most of my life has already been lived. And then like most of us, when a cultural icon dies, we're children because you think, how could he or she die? 
And then he confessed after performing in front of 100,000 fans in Australia. He says he's realizing he's thinking about having more days uh, behind him than in front of him. And that could be, that could be upsetting. Some of us may think, well, I'm, I'm at the middle of my life. Have I done everything I should have? Maybe you've even caught yourself comparing yourself to people uh, who maybe have done more in, in the same amount of time that you've had. That causes something called the midlife crisis. Third, we fear being separated from loved ones. We fear being separated from loved ones. And of course, this is painful. Uh, if you've got deep and meaningful relationships with friends and family, it's painful to think about being separated from them for any period of time that really you don't know what that is. And then fourth, and this actually comes from a, a psychiatrist uh, named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she said it's very difficult to accept death because we fear the unknown. We're going down a road that we've not been down before, seeing things we've never seen, wherever that may be happening. If it's in a hospital or in hospice or it's, it's it's in a moment of trauma. We don't know how our death is going to come. So it's this unknown factor. We really won't know until we experience it what it's going to be like. So it becomes this scary thing that we want to avoid at all costs. For a lot of us, I think for believers, you know, we too experience this, this fear at times. And some people think, well, the way to deal with it is that you rage against it. You get angry at it. You know, you like, show it who's boss. There's this poem, you may have heard it. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. And we can get as mad as we want, but we're still going to face this enemy. So then what difference does our faith make? You know, I can relate to these. These reasons of being fearful of death. But then, based on those verses we just read, and I, I want to take a moment now and go in deeper and, and, and look at that and understand what is Hebrews 2 telling us about death and dying. And we see, first of all, in verse 10, that Christ was perfected through death. Christ was perfected through death. And what does that mean? I mean, he's God. He's perfect already. So take a closer look at this verse. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we have God the Father in view here. Uh, he was the one that created all things. And he said it was fitting that he, being God the Father, uh, it was appropriate that he would make the founder of their salvation, referring to Jesus Christ. Or you could say the champion of their salvation. And some, some versions actually say the pilgrim, the trailblazer of their salvation. Uh, perfect through suffering. Jesus is the hero of the story in this passage. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect before he went through this suffering. So what does it mean? It's, there's, a, there's a Greek word there, katergeo, and it means to, um, to bring to completion. In other words, this mission that Jesus was given to provide salvation to mankind was completed. 
Uh, it, was, it was brought to perfection by his completion of it. He went through the plans that God had through his death to bring salvation. So, uh, all those things were done so he could bring many sons, and some versions say many sons and daughters, to glory. Salvation was made possible through this work of Jesus Christ. And then we also see that Christ stands with us in verses 11 through 13. Uh, I want to take a closer look at that. And it says that we see that Christ has this relationship with his people. So in verse 11 it states, uh, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So that first phrase, he who sanctifies, is referring to Christ. And sanctification is this process. You know, when you first become a new believer. Uh, yeah, I've heard people describe having a, a wonderful feeling coming over them and these good things happening. But frankly, they may, the second day of their salvation, they may commit the same sins they did the day before their salvation. This sanctification process is a process by which we are being made more and more like Christ. It's called progressive sanctification. Being made holy. Being more, more and more being made like Jesus throughout our, our walk of life. I wish it was a process that happened just like that, but that's not the way God does it. We are sanctified till he takes us home. Then the next phrase, and those who are sanctified, a reference to Christians who are saved, it says they have the same source. Now, despite enormous differences, obviously, between us and Jesus Christ, we have this same source. What, now, there again, well, what's it talking about? Because how can God have a source, right? Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. However, his humanity does have a beginning. His humanity was not eternal. So we being human and the humanity of Christ have the same source. The same God who made us human. God the Father also made Christ human, gave him humanity. He became incarnate. This means he put on humanity. And we share this unity because of that common origin of our humanity. And then look, this is, this is fascinating. He calls us brothers and sisters. Not ashamed to call us brothers. See, our Savior, our Savior is also our sibling. Now just try to get your head around that for a minute. I mean, talking about having a sibling would be tough to be compared to, you know? It's like, wow. And then in verses 12 and 13, these Old Testament passages are quoted. Uh, and it says there, these are from Psalm 22, actually, the first one is from Psalm 22, 22. If you look back at Psalm chapter 22, it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It speaks of the sufferings that Christ is going to go through, physical suffering, and the jeers that he's going to receive while he's on earth. It's called a messianic psalm. It's looking forward to the coming Messiah. That's Psalm 22. And then when you get to Psalm 22, verse 22, Jesus proclaims, the name of the Lord. And to who? It says his brothers, his spiritual family. And where is this? It says it's happening in the midst of the assembly. It's happening among the people on earth. So we see Jesus 
while suffering, is proclaiming the word to his spiritual family here on earth. We are still existing to this day, 2,000 years after Christ set foot on earth. We are his spiritual family. We don't always act like family, but we are his spiritual family. So he's rejoicing with them. And then in verse 13, the writer quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. And um, originally this was a, a, a section of Isaiah written when, they were, when the Israelites were facing these coming Assyrians, this, this empire. They, they were certain they were facing utter annihilation. And they were scared, they were afraid. But then they proclaimed this, the prophet Isaiah says it, and this is also now brought into the New Testament as though Christ himself is saying it to the Father. I will put my trust in him. Here I am and the children God has given me. I trust the Father even though I'm suffering and I stand here with my brothers and sisters, those with whom I'm living. Do you see this close connection that Christ has with us? With you and I. He came and he lived among us. You know, there was a man by the name of John Howard Griffin. And in 1959, he was, he was a white man that wanted to understand the plight, the trouble of, of African Americans back in the late 50s. He actually darkened his skin with medication uh, and sun lamps and stains. And he traveled throughout the, the South. And he wrote a book called Black Like Me. And he did all that to help whites better understand the humiliation and discrimination people of color were dealing with daily. You see, Jesus Christ came down and became one of us to understand the trouble and make sure that we knew he understood the trouble that you and I go through. He came and he lived like one of us. He became one of us. He was tempted like one of us. He felt physical pain like one of us. He felt betrayal like us. He walked through all of those things. He understands our trouble. And then in this last section, verses 14 through 18, we see the writer directly addressing the subject he brought up at the beginning, that Christ freed us from this fear of death. And uh, we see it in verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So how has the power of the devil, how is it going to be destroyed? There was only one way that this power was going to be destroyed. And that was actually by satisfying the standards that God himself had set. He was perfect. And therefore, when sin came into the world, the only way to atone, the only way to uh, make that right was through sacrifice. And ultimately, there had to be a perfect sacrifice. And the only perfect one who could make that sacrifice was God himself. So God was going to have to die. Well, how is God going to die? Well, he's going to have to become human. So that's what he did. He he partook, he became flesh and blood, like us, and he died. He took on the sin of the world, 
like a disease that infected all of mankind, he put it into himself. And he took it to the cross with him. And when he was crucified, being fully God and fully man, he paid for the sins of mankind. And he made this wonderful free gift of salvation available for you and me. I want to just pause here for a second because, you know, when we're talking about this issue of death and the imminence of death, I want to make sure you understand how you can be delivered from death. And not just a physical death, but an eternal death. If you have never trusted in the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, I want you to think about doing that right now. As a matter of fact, I would like for everybody just to close their head and bow their eyes for just a moment. If you just close your eyes and bow your head. If you're here today and you're unsure of your eternal destination, there's a prayer I'd like to lead you in at this moment. It's very simple. If you just call out God and, and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. You can say this quietly right there. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe that the Lord Jesus was fully God. And he came to earth and was crucified for my sin. And I am trusting in what he did for my own salvation. I'm not going to do it my own way anymore. And now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask if anyone, if you have said that prayer today, and it's the first time, would you slip your hand up just so I'm, I'm the only one looking around? Okay. I see that hand. Thank you. And Lord, I'm thankful for this, this new birth we have today here in our congregation. I'm thankful for this soul that was saved. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <coughs> that was how the power of Satan was going to be destroyed. Through the work that Jesus did. He paid with his own blood. It was the only way for him to die, was to become human. Then we start seeing these other benefits of Christ's humanity. In verse 15, it says, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. Not only did Jesus liberate us from death, by the way, praise God, we've got a new person in Christ here today. Praise God. Not only did he liberate us from death, but he liberated us even from the fear of death. Now, here's the problem. We don't always feel free, do we? We don't always feel free from this fear of death. And there's a, a contemporary philosopher by the name of Simon Critchley, and he often writes about how Christians really don't know how to prepare for death. And uh, he is especially a surprise that because Christians, have, they've got so many reasons not to fear death. So he wrote about this, and he, he actually he took a survey done in 2003. He said that 92% of Americans claim to believe in God, 85% believe in heaven, 82% believe in miracles. But he said the deeper truth is that such religious belief, complete with a heavenly afterlife, brings believers little solace in the face of death. 
He said the only priesthood, and this is where it really gets close to the heart, the only priesthood in which people really believe is the medical profession, and the purpose of all their drugs and technology is to support longevity, the sole unquestioned good of contemporary American life. He said, if proof were needed that many religious believers actually do not practice what they preach, it could be found in the ignorance of religious teaching on death, particularly Christian teaching. And he goes on to look backwards and he says, if you look at Christianity in the hands of the Apostle Paul or Augustine or Martin Luther, he says, it was a way of becoming reconciled to the brevity of human life and giving up the desire for wealth, worldly goods, and temporary power. And then he goes on to say this, but many Christians today are actually leading desperate atheist lives bounded by a desire for longevity and a terror of death. Boy, that hit me close to the heart. He's saying that we live as though there is no heaven, even though we as Christians believe in heaven, even though it's told us right there in the pages of the scripture exactly what happens to us when we die. Why is that? I'll tell you why I think that is. I believe it's simply because Satan has tricked us. He's tricked us into thinking that the world we see, the things around us, are as good as it's ever going to be. And that somehow, and I still haven't figured this one out, somehow we believe that heaven's going to be disappointing in comparison to this life. How did we get to that? That is such a lie. And what is a lie that keeps us enslaved to this fear of death? We don't need to have this enslaving fear. And the degree to which we believe that Christ has truly rendered Satan powerless to keep us afraid of death is the degree to which we can be freed from the fear of it. The degree to which we can believe that that Christ has truly conquered it is the degree to which we can be freed from even the fear of it. In verse 16, the, the, the text goes on, it becomes clear that the salvation Christ offers was not for the angels, interestingly. Christ did not die for the salvation of angels. They are those who have fallen and become demons. They are unredeemable by the blood of Christ. It says he became like us in every respect, even tempted like us, so he can help us through the temptations that we're going to face. So then, there are definite reasons why Christians should not fear death. First of all, we fear the loss of mastery, but guess what? We've already surrendered mastery. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you gave it up. You said, God, here's my life. It's not mine any, anymore. By the way, the idea of of having your life completely mastered like you've got control of it, that's such an illusion anyway. You never had control like you thought you had control. So many things can slip in. I, Corey Ten Boom said, don't bother giving God instructions, just report for duty. <laughs> Secondly, we fear incompleteness and failure, but we hope in an eternal future. You know, I guarantee you, I'm at this point, I know this is going to shock you. I'm not going to be president of the United States. I know. I've just got to live with that. 
Whatever dreams and aspirations you may have, you're probably not going to reach all those. But we have, after three microseconds in heaven, you're going to forget about all those anyway. It won't matter. You're not going to have regrets in heaven, in, in, in the afterlife, in the presence of God himself. There's a wonderful prayer by a guy named John Bailey. I, he wrote a fantastic uh, book. You can actually find it online about prayer and his own prayers that he's prayed. And he said this. He was, uh, he, he was a, a school chaplain in Scotland uh, in the 1800s. He said, this was one of his prayers, Grant that each day may do something to strengthen my hold upon the unseen world, to increase my sense of its reality, and to attach my heart to its holy and eternal interests. Then, as the end of my earthly life draws ever nearer, I may not grow to be a part of these fleeting earthly surroundings, but may rather yearn more and more for the life of the world to come. Every day. Can we pray something like that? God, make my heart attached more to the things that are coming to the things that are around me right now. Next, uh, we fear separation from loved ones, but we will be reunited with loved ones. Um, every time we take communion, we're going to do it today, as a matter of fact, I'm going to say it again. When we take communion, we're getting a little picture of this big meal that we're all going to have together in heaven. Now, it's only like, you know, I know it's a cracker and a little piece of orange juice, right? Or grape juice, okay? It's not quite this incredible meal, but someday it's going to be an incredible meal. And we'll all take it together. And we'll be together. And even if you're saying, well, Chad, you don't know. See, some of my loved ones have gone on, and I don't know if they knew Christ. You're still going to be a part of that heavenly meal. And somehow, in the wisdom of God, you're not going to suffer with the loss. However, that, however God works that out, you'll be with people who will love you like you've never been loved before. And you'll see those family members who have gone on and have trusted in Jesus. And you'll never be separated again. By the way, let that be a motivation to share the gospel with lost family members. Amen. Next, we fear the unknown, but we know the one who went before us. I had a great conversation this past week. Gary Kopsa came by my office, and he said, you know something, Chad? He said, wherever we find ourselves in life, we find the footprints of someone who has already been there. Jesus Christ went before us in every way. If you find yourself in a dark, scary cave, there's a pair of footprints that have already been there. When you come to death's door, guess what? You find a pair of footprints that have already been there. Jesus already went there, and guess what? He came back. He came back. And that gives us this hope of the eternal life we're going to have with him. He didn't stay dead. And neither will we. We'll be resurrected when Christ returns. So putting all that together, knowing that Jesus is preparing a place for us there, enjoy life free from the fear of death. Enjoy a life free from the fear of death. Our faith makes a huge difference.
And in closing, this past week, it was on January 29th, uh, it marked the occasion of the 75th anniversary of the liberation uh, of the Nazi concentration camp in Auschwitz. And if you're not familiar with it, it was just this murder factory that was part of the Nazis' final solution to eliminate the Jews. And Jews were brought there to die. There were 1.1 million people killed there, over 200,000 children. And when those Jews were being filed into that concentration camp, they would walk under a gate that said this, and I know I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, uh, Arbit macht free. Arbit macht free. It means work makes you free. And it was a total lie. It was a false hope. Because work was not going to make them free. They would all be freed by death. And it wasn't until those soldiers came in there and liberated this camp that they were going to truly be free. See, that's what Jesus did with death. He came in and he liberated us from it. And it wasn't that lie that work makes us free. It was trust and faith in him that liberated us, not only from death, but also even the fear of death. And it's my prayer that you can leave here, walk out of this auditorium today and say, death, I'm ready for you. I'm ready to face my final end. Please pray with me. Lord, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against these dark powers you say in your word, God. These, these powers that would seek to cloud uh, our understanding of what's true from your word. You tell us that death is not something to be afraid of, that you've conquered it, that you have rendered Satan inoperative. He's powerless. Lord, I pray that we would never be enslaved to death, the fear of it. I pray that we would never uh, give in to that trickery. I pray that we would grasp your truth. I pray that we would leave here today ready to face that enemy whenever it shows its face, knowing that you have already defeated it. We ask it in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.